But Gabriel's prophecy continues into one more chapter. It's not a very long one, thankfully. Gabriel's prophecy continues from this very same moment. So where are we contextually in history? At the end of 11, where have we come to? The Antichrist's death. The second coming of Christ. The end of this age. And we presume the start of the kingdom. Presume meaning that's the next thing we would expect to see discussed, right? But it turns out there's some stuff that happens right between the two that gets talked about now in chapter 12. So we're in the same moment. We move into chapter 12, verse 1. Now, at that time, Michael, the great prince who stands guard over the sons of your people, will arise. And there will be a time of distress such as never occurred since there was a nation until that time. And at that time, your people, everyone who is found written in the book, will be rescued. Many of those who sleep in the dust of the ground will awake. These to everlasting life, but the others to disgrace and everlasting contempt. Those who have insight will shine brightly like the brightness of the expanse of heaven. Those who lead the many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. So as I alluded to there a moment ago, it's important to note how chapter 12 begins. It has a time reference, and that time reference is at that time. That time refers to chapter 11. That's the time of tribulation. The time of the Antichrist rising to power, then being defeated, right? It's more generic than simply the last moment of tribulation. It's really looking at the days around tribulation. And we could say it this way, now in those days, as opposed to at that time. It's all the same, though. We're saying that in the tribulation, and toward the very end of it in particular, Michael, who's called a great prince, which means an angel, will arise. Now, interestingly, he's identified as the angel it says here, who's assigned to guard the people of Israel. And it says here, he is the great prince. That would seem to suggest he is the highest angel, maybe above even Gabriel. Therefore, it's noteworthy that the Lord assigns his highest angel to protect the people of Israel. But the arising of Michael implies that he's moving now in some new way to accomplish something God has planned. It's not suggesting that he forgot about Israel or he's been laying down on the job. It's simply to indicate now a time has come for him to do something. He arises specifically to bring the age of the Gentiles to an end so that Israel may be returned to its time of glory. That's why it's for the sake of Israel. And the first order of business for this angel is to battle against the Antichrist and his forces. But verse 1 isn't strictly speaking of a single battle, this great time of distress. I think it's describing the entire period of tribulation, but with an understanding that the worst is at the end. That fact alone proves that the period described in chapter 11 has yet to happen. Because he says, at that time, meaning the time of chapter 11, the last part of chapter 11, at that time, there will be a distress on the world that has never been equaled at any other point in history. Well, if chapter 11 were speaking strictly about things that happened back in Antiochus' day, or even, for example, in the time of AD 70, of the destruction of the temple under the Romans, let's say, even if we want to say it's that time, are you saying that's not as bad as World War II was? or any of the other great calamities that have happened since. Now, it precludes us from pointing to past historical events as the fulfillment of chapter 11 because of what chapter 12, verse 1 says about it in being uniquely terrible, unequaled. Gabriel says Michael's rise for Israel happens in this unprecedented period of distress. It leads to glory for the people of Israel because it will bring Israel back into the bond of the covenant. That's what we learn in chapter 9 of Daniel, that the tribulation has that effect. Therefore, the end of one says that many of Daniel's people will be rescued. To be rescued could mean many things, but verse 1 makes clear what rescued means. It says those who are rescued are those who are found written in the book. 
So to be found written in the book is to be rescued, or the ones to be rescued are the ones written in the book. And the book here is the book of life. It's the book in which are inscribed the names of all who will inherit eternal life. That book's mentioned in various places in the Bible. Paul mentions it at one point. Jesus speaks about it. It's uh, particularly clear in Revelation, in chapter 3, verse 5, in writing to the churches, Jesus said, He who overcomes will thus be clothed in white garments, and I will not erase his name from the book of life, and I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. Later, John wrote in chapter 20, in Revelation 20:15, If anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. The book of life holds the name of those who are saints and who are destined for eternal life in the kingdom, because if you're not in it, you're in the lake of fire. So anyone who's not found in the book are the unbelieving, the damned. And the book holds the names of both Jew and Gentile. It's not unique to one group. In this case, though, he says, your people, Daniel. So we know we're talking here specifically about the Jewish people in this case. So Gabriel says, those who are found in this book of life are rescued in these difficult days. And to be rescued then must mean to be saved eternally. It's an indication of someone coming to salvation during these difficult days. And Revelation tells us about that moment, about the evangelistic power of the time of tribulation. In Revelation 7, verse 1, John wrote this, After this I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding back the four winds of the earth, so that no wind would blow on the earth or on the sea or on any tree. And I saw another angel ascending from the rising of the sun, having the seal of the living God, and he cried out with a loud voice to the four angels, to whom it was granted to harm the earth and the sea, saying, Do not harm the earth or the sea or the trees until we have sealed the bondservants of our God on their foreheads. And I heard the number of those who were sealed, 144,000 sealed from every tribe of the sons of Israel. Jumping to verse 9. After these things I looked and behold a great multitude which no one could count from every nation and all the tribes and peoples and tongues standing before the throne and before the Lamb clothed in white robes and palm branches were in their hands Earlier, John asked, who are all these people? And the angel said, well, who do you think they are? And John said, I don't know. You tell me. And verse 14, and he said to me, these are the ones who came out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the lamb. You may have heard that before, the famous 144,000. Essentially, this army of 144,000 Jewish men are brought to faith by the Spirit of God in the early stages of tribulation by God's grace so that they can then become evangelists to the world, and by their effect, it says they bring an uncountable number of all men and women, Jews and Gentiles, to faith. And eventually, many of them are martyred. And that's in keeping with what we see happening in Daniel chapter 12, verse 1, that many of the Jewish people, it says here, will be rescued. Their rescue is coming in the form of this evangelistic reach that God is making into their lives. Furthermore, at the very end of tribulation, the Lord will save the remaining Jews who are alive on earth, All those will be in the book of life because at Christ's second coming, Paul tells us, among other places, that all remaining Jews will be saved. Romans 11.25, he says, I do not want you, brethren, to be uninformed of this mystery so that you will not be wise in your own estimation that a partial hardening has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. Or we could say, until the age of the Gentiles has been completed. And so... All Israel will be saved, just as is written, and he describes the second coming of Christ. The deliverer will come from Zion. He will remove ungodliness from Jacob. This is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. 
The covenant that promises all Israel will be saved in this particular fashion is the old covenant. The one that they're being brought into the bond to. The one they have to return to. The one Malachi is going to point them to. Getting the full promises of the old covenant depends on all Israel confessing the Lord. The final act of tribulation is God bringing Israel back to the bond of that covenant so that they may receive the kingdom. And Gabriel is speaking of this group when he describes this great rescue of your people, Daniel, at the end of this time, at that time. And then after they are spiritually saved, that is by faith, the Lord takes the final step of bringing these saints new bodies. And in verse 2 of Daniel 12, it says that those of Israel, many who sleep in the dust of the ground, will awaken. Now to sleep in this context means to be dead, that is to be without a body. At death, the body of a saint, whether Old or New Testament, enters the grave while the spirit of that person continues to exist in full consciousness somewhere. That spirit awaits a new body in a day to come, at the time of the resurrection. The place of the spirit of a saint, the place they would go, is different than the place that the spirit of an unbeliever would go. And even in terms of history, the destination differed for the saint in times of old versus what would happen today. Those are things we, we don't have time to get into today. But let's stay on the point that Gabriel's making. Gabriel describes the moment of Israel's resurrection as an awakening of those in the dust of the ground to everlasting life. So the church saints, to give you some comparison, the church saints were, are resurrected before tribulation begins at a moment we commonly call the rapture. So that's the moment when all who've ever lived in the time of the church are in new bodies, whether they've died or whether they're still living in the moment. They'll all get new bodies simultaneously. Those who have died already are getting bodies matched to their spirit that's already with Christ. Those of us who have not died, if we're still alive at that moment, will simply pass from this body into the next instantaneously, Paul says. Not needing to die to get there. But the saints who died prior to Pentecost, we call them the Old Testament saints, they had a slightly different path. And Gabriel says that the Old Testament saints will receive their new bodies, not at the rapture when we do, but at the other end of tribulation. At the end of tribulation, here Daniel chapter 12, verse 2, is telling us that. That those who have been rescued, those who are in the book of life of Daniel's people, your people, are receiving their new bodies here in chapter 12, verse 2, which we just learned is at that time, at the end of tribulation. They are awakening to everlasting life, it says there. Notice also, however, there are others, others within Israel who will awaken to everlasting contempt. Now, whatever you hold the word everlasting to mean, it must mean the same thing in both cases. Everlasting life, we know, means to live forever in a certain state of glory and bliss and joy. Well, everlasting contempt must be an equally everlasting and permanent life in a totally different kind of situation. So within Israel, there will be those who believed over the history of its existence, and there were those who did not believe in their life whenever they lived, just as we have those today, those who are saved by faith and those who aren't. But all people are resurrected in the end, all humanity, all receive new bodies. Notice that those in the book of life have everlasting life in their new bodies, while those who are not in the book of life have everlasting contempt in their new bodies. But both groups have an everlasting existence. The only question is, where do you live eternally? Heaven or the lake of fire? Those are the two options you get in Revelation 20. And Revelation 20 says that the resurrection of the righteous throughout history 
takes place prior to the kingdom. Now, keep these uh, time references straight in your mind. The church has been resurrected before tribulation. The Old Testament saints, Israel's saints, have been resurrected after tribulation. But both groups have been resurrected before the kingdom. And that's purposeful, so that all the righteous will have the same opportunity to live together in the same place for the full thousand years. Whether you were an Old Testament saint or a church saint or a tribulation saint, I should add, all of them are resurrected before the start of the kingdom because we all need to be there together. Notice in verse 3, Gabriel says, Those who have insight will shine brightly in this coming kingdom. Having insight would just mean to have the faith in Christ that God grants by His grace that gives us entry into the kingdom. Insight is a code word in this book for the faith that saves. Those who have that insight, it says, will take, it seems, of the glory of God in their resurrected state. This reference to shining could be metaphor or it could be literal. If it's literal, it means that the new bodies glow in a fashion similar to the way Jesus appeared to Daniel and to John or maybe to the way Moses' face appeared. Who knows? Meanwhile, the resurrection for those not in the book It does not happen at this point, and that's not the intention of Gabriel's words in Daniel 12. He's not saying that both these resurrections happen at the same time. He's just speaking about the two destinations, ultimately. The resurrection for those who are not in the book of life, no matter when you lived, awaits until after the kingdom, because it needs to include all the unbelievers who come out of the kingdom. And if you're not familiar with the fact that there are unbelievers and sin in the kingdom, that's something you can also learn in the Revelation study. All believers must be resurrected prior to the kingdom so they can enjoy it. The resurrection of all unbelievers must wait until after the kingdom so that all are included in it. And it leads to all being sent to live forever in the lake of fire at the end. Verse 4 now. As for you, Daniel, conceal these words and seal up the book until the end of time. Many will go back and forth and knowledge will increase. Now we're getting close to that promised surprise ending which I said was coming that connects the book of Daniel to Revelation. Among all the other ways we've seen it already. After Gabriel tells Daniel about the resurrection of the Old Testament saints, he tells Daniel, conceal these words. Now, Daniel is told to seal up a book until the end of time. You notice that? Now, at first you may be thinking, and some do think, that he's speaking here about sealing up the words that we've been reading right now. That is, the prophecies of the book of Daniel, or at least these last couple of chapters, right? But, friends, that doesn't make any sense because you're reading them. Jews were reading them not long after it was written. The book of Daniel was never sealed, as far as we know. He's got to be talking about something else, some other book. Some other book that has details different than the ones revealed in Daniel alone. A book we don't have, in our hands, that is. What might we find in this other book? And why did the angel ask Daniel to even write it in the first place if he's not allowed to show it to anybody? Well, those answers come here in a minute. In verse 4, the angel says that many will go back and forth. The, The many here continues to refer to Israel. So it's a summary of Israel's future during the rest of the days of the age of the Gentiles. Israel is going to go back and forth in the sense of coming in and out of their land, in and out of persecution, in and out of safety. Israel is going to endure all kinds of ups and downs over the centuries as God directs in keeping with the age of the Gentiles. But none of those ups and downs are fundamentally going to alter their situation. They're going to remain under Gentile oppression. They might have a part of Jerusalem one year. They might live in their land for some generation. They might be kicked out again. They may go through a holocaust and then be reunited in their land and then ups and downs. But at the end, they'll never gain a real security. They'll never have the full promises they've been given in the land. Whatever they find will be fleeting, incomplete, ultimately temporary. Only the Messiah's return will correct the situation. 
Furthermore, he says, knowledge will increase. I think that refers to increasing spiritual knowledge resulting from more revelation from God. I mean, you know you've got more books of Old Testament yet to be written after Daniel. Not many, but some. You certainly got the entire New Testament that's still yet to be written after Daniel. This is to say nothing of the Messiah's arrival, right? Nevertheless, that increasing spiritual knowledge will not by itself change Israel's plight. Again, the point is that though great things are yet to happen, ups and downs will come, knowledge will increase, the nation as a whole is not going to see a fundamental shifting from its current circumstances until the age of the Gentiles is over. Nothing fixes the problem save Christ's second coming. Then Daniel takes over the narrative. No longer is Gabriel speaking. Now it's Daniel. And this is how he finishes the book. Verse 5. Then I, Daniel, looked and behold, two others were standing. One on this bank of the river and the other on that bank of the river. And one said to the man dressed in linen who was above the waters of the river, How long will it be until the end of these wonders? I heard the man dressed in linen who was above the waters of the river as he raised his right hand and his left toward heaven and swore by him who lives forever that it would be a time, times, and half a time. And as soon as they finished shattering the power of the holy people, all these events will be completed. As for me, I heard but could not understand. So I said, My Lord, what will be the outcome of these events? He said, Go your way, Daniel, for these words are concealed and sealed up until the end time. We know that the man in linen is Christ. We said that from a prior week, last week. And on either bank you see the two standing, which I presume to be Gabriel on Daniel's side of the bank, and then maybe Michael on the other side. Daniel then hears one of these angels asking Jesus, how long until the end of these wonders? What, what wonders is he asking about? Is he talking about everything Gabriel just described in chapters 10 through 12? Or some portion of it only? Or, or maybe he's talking about the things written in that book that was sealed that we don't get to know about. Well, Christ's answer gives us, I think, the clue. Jesus first swore by the one who lives forever that these wonders will last a time, times, and half a time. That phrase is another important linkage to the book of Revelation, remember, the same phrase appears in Revelation 12, and we know from the context of Revelation that it means a year plus two years plus half a year, or three and a half years, right? So Jesus says the times of these wonders will be three and a half years. And he adds that at the conclusion of this time, the holy people, that is Israel, will be shattered, and then that will be what leads to all events being completed. So what Jesus gives us is an anchor now for the three and a half years. The end of those three and a half years are when the holy people are shattered, when they're broken. And that's when all the purposes of the time have been met. So that lets us anchor the three and a half years to the end of tribulation. Does everybody understand why we just said that? So Jesus was asked, how long for all of these wonders to complete? And he was told three and a half years. And at the end of the three and a half years, we'll see Israel shattered, broken, and returned to me. And all of these things completed. So we know that Daniel was troubled by terrifying visions at the outset of chapter 10. And Gabriel came to him because he wanted to give Daniel additional insight about these terrible things he had heard or seen in some vision. And some of that additional understanding from the angel is what we have recorded now in chapters 10 through 12. Those are the things that covered Persia and the kings of Greece and Antiochus and even looked ahead into tribulation a little bit, right? But now we've been told that Daniel was asked to write of these wonders in a little book and seal it up and not show what he learned to anyone. And then Jesus added, collectively, these things that Daniel has been asked to write and seal up are the last three and a half years of tribulation. The things Daniel wrote then must be in addition to what we have here. His additional insight from Gabriel includes everything he wrote to us 
and a bunch more stuff that he was troubled by that he put in a little book and now he couldn't share with us that has to do with those last three and a half years of tribulation. No wonder Daniel himself was so confused. That's why he asks in verse 8, what will be the outcome of all of these things? He means, can you explain what these events mean? What's their purpose? How does the story end? And the Lord tells him, just drop it. Just go your way because the meaning of these things is not going to be revealed until the end time. Those who live in the end times will be allowed to know what these things mean that you just wrote. In the meantime, Jesus gives Daniel a summary of life until that time. Speaking of the Jews, he says many will be purged and refined. Trials and persecutions will come upon Israel. They'll endure them over the centuries. We've seen that. And in time, that will produce a crop of believing Jews from century to century. And then he says, verse 10, Many will be purged and purified and refined, but the wicked will act wickedly, and none of the wicked will understand. But those who have insight will understand. So from those verses, you see him describing a little bit of what life's going to be like until the end for the Jewish people. Uh, As I said, he mentions many are purified and refined. Secondly, the wicked will continue to act wickedly because they're not going to understand the truth, and that's important too. The flip side of that is, those circumstances, even persecutions by themselves, cannot bring faith, cannot produce faith. The unbelieving heart cannot know the truth until God reveals it to them, but he will grant insight to some along the way, and the remnant of Israel will understand the word of God and be saved. So that's bringing us to the question we all want answered, right? What happened to that little book? When do we get to know what's in it? If he sealed it and he never shared it with the world, then how do those of the end times ever come to know of it in the first place? The answer is found in Revelation 10. Let me read you Revelation 10. John wrote, I saw another strong angel coming down out of heaven, clothed with a cloud, and the rainbow was upon his head, and his face was like the sun, and his feet like pillars of fire. And he had in his hand a little book, which was open. He placed his right foot on the sea and his left on the land. Sound familiar? And he cried out with a loud voice, as when a lion roars. And when he had cried out, the seven peals of thunder uttered their voices. When the seven peals of thunder had spoken, I was about to write, and I heard a voice from heaven saying, Seal up the things which the seven peals of thunder have spoken, and do not write them. Then the angel whom I saw standing on the sea and on the land lifted up his right hand to heaven and swore by him who lives forever and ever, who created heaven and the things in it, and the earth and the things in it, and the sea and the things in it, that there will be delay no longer. But... In the days of the voice of the seventh angel, when he is about to sound, then the mystery of God is finished, as he preached to his servants, the prophets. Then the voice which I heard from heaven, I heard again speaking with me and saying, Go take the book, which is open in the hand of the angel who stands on the sea and on the land. So I went to the angel, telling him to give me the little book. And he said to me, Take it and eat it. It will make your stomach bitter, but in your mouth it will be sweet as honey. I took the little book out of the angel's hand and I ate it, and in my mouth it was sweet as honey. And when I had eaten it, my stomach was made bitter. And they said to me, You must prophesy again concerning many peoples and nations and tongues and kings. So do you see all the similarities between this moment and the one we've just been studying in Daniel 12? John sees a strong angel descend from heaven. This is the angel Michael arising as promised in chapter 12, verse 1 of Daniel. In the last age, Michael will arise. This is him arising, so to speak. And as he returns, he carries with him a little book. Now, why is it little? Probably because it's just man-sized and the angel is much larger in appearance. So he makes this look very small. This is not an angel book. This is a human book that a human wrote years earlier and the angel has been holding on to it for the appointed time. And 
as he arrives, he swears like Jesus did in the first place upon him who lives forever on the throne. Only Jesus swore at his time in Daniel 12 that there would be a length of time for these wonders to complete in the future. This angel now swears that there'll be no longer any delay. We're ready for these things to take place. Now the angel is saying it's come, time has come for those three and a half years to transpire. And he directs John, take this little book and eat, eat it. Once he eats it, of course, as it said, his mouth found it sweet, but his stomach found it bitter. And that's a classic description of prophecy. Because you find prophecy attractive in the sense that it's exciting to learn about the future. It's always very intriguing. But once you get to know what it really says, and especially if you're the one who has to go through it, you find it all very troubling and disturbing. That was to be John's experience. So as you can probably tell, the book John received is the one Daniel wrote. Daniel was given by God a detailed understanding of the events of the second half of tribulation, what we call the Great Tribulation. It included the bold judgments, all the stuff you read in Revelation. And Revelation chapters 11 through 19 are what Daniel was given. And when he asked for clarification of what all that meant, Gabriel came and gave him some explanation, but obviously it didn't shed much light on what Daniel saw in his visions. And that's why Daniel's asking for even more clarification, at which point he was told, don't worry about it. It was for someone else to reveal it in the last days. And John received it, and he was commissioned to prophesy with it, to write it out. And the events John wrote in, in Revelation 11 through 19 are what Daniel wrote in the little book and sealed up for the last days. John was given them and permitted to open them and reveal them. But interestingly, even though the book of Revelation was written 2,000 years ago, the meaning of chapters 11 through 19 have eluded believers for centuries since. It's only been in the past century or so, by the Spirit moving in the church, that we've been permitted to come to a full and proper understanding of what those chapters reveal. So if we now have this growing understanding of these things, which were reserved for the end times, what does that tell you about the times you're living in? Moreover, you might ask the question, why did the Lord bother with having Daniel write the little book in the first place? Why not just give it all to John at John's day? I think the best answer is that it helps tie these two books together and authenticate John's writing in the process. You can see these two books are working so closely together, and that's why you can trust, because Daniel's prophecy is largely fulfilled, and that authenticates him. And then there's this little link between what he wrote and didn't tell us and what came into John's hands later that John could reveal. And that ties those two books together in a way that gives John's book authenticity. So if you want to say, how do I know that what John wrote is going to be true? Well, what he wrote is what Daniel got. You trust Daniel, well, then you have every reason to trust John. Finally, the book of Daniel ends with one last tantalizing prophecy about what follows at the end of tribulation. Verse 11 and 12 from the time that the regular sacrifice is abolished and the abomination of desolation is set up, there will be 1,290 days. How blessed is he who keeps waiting and attains to the 1,335th day, or till 1,335 days. The Lord gives Daniel this date range, and he says, Begin counting from the midpoint of tribulation, when the regular sacrifice is abolished and the abomination is set up. This is the midpoint of the last seven, right? He says, Counting from that point, there will be 1,290 days. Well, Jews count 360 days in a year, so there would be 1,260 days in those three and a half years that we know are yet to happen, right? But we just got a number of 1,290, not 1,260. So why count 30 days longer? What are we counting toward at that point? We've already passed the death of the Antichrist. We've passed Christ's second coming. Those happened at 1,260. Then he said count to 1,290. So there must be something important happening 
at 1290. And even more confusing, he goes one more verse and says, those who attain until 1335 are those who are blessed. That adds another 45 days after the 30. So something important happens at day 30 following tribulation, and then something blessed happens on day 75 following tribulation. We call this period after tribulation the 75-day interval, very craftily named. <laughs> the best answer I've found is the first period of 30 days counts until the restoration of the temple. That's based on Jesus' description in verse 11. He specifically mentions the abomination of desolation in verse 11. That would suggest that there's a 30-day period of cleansing the temple, removing the statue that's been set up, preparing it again for worship in the time of the kingdom. So for 30 days, we're waiting for the abomination to be taken down after the return of Christ. Then we have an additional 45 days, it says, till you can count yourself blessed, which would seem to suggest the beginning of the kingdom starts 45 days later. So that if you're not there on the 45th day after the 30, well, you're not in the kingdom. That's not a good sign. And in that sense, the person is blessed to reach the end of the 75 days. It suggests that a choosing process of some kind is taking place during that interval, right? Perhaps Jesus was describing that process in Matthew 25 when he talked about the separation of the goat from the sheep after his second coming. Besides that, even if you don't count that, the earth is a gigantic fixer-upper. Think about all the destruction that's happened during the tribulation, and yet it's this very same earth that we occupy for the kingdom, for the full thousand years of the kingdom. So if the world's going to return to a paradise, there must be some time given to the cleanup effort. Obviously, it's going to be accomplished supernaturally, but whatever happens in that time, it's 45 more days before the kingdom actually starts and the clock on the thousand years has begun. Last verse of the book, Daniel's dismissed from prophetic service, verse 13. But as for you, go your way to the end. Then you will enter into rest and rise again for your allotted portion at the end of the age. So besides going his own way, he's told he will die and he will enter into eternal rest. The benefit to him in this is he won't have to endure anything that he's been told will come. This is a great source of peace for him. Then he's told he will be resurrected. He will rise again, as will all saints. As I said, one day you're going to meet him. And like all saints, it says he will receive a portion, his portion in the kingdom, his reward. So Daniel's being assured that all the things he's seen don't need to weigh on him personally. He's not going to experience the tribulation. And therefore, we too share in that promise, friends. We won't see the tribulation. We'll enter into rest or into resurrection directly. And we will have our assured uh, inheritance in the kingdom as well. All of that is, is going to come to pass, we're told, very soon, I would assume. Thank you for coming. Have a great Christmas. Let's pray just briefly and we'll finish our study. Father, thank you, Lord, for Daniel, for his faithfulness for his inquisitiveness. Father, thank you for his um, revelation to us, Father. We ask, Lord, that uh, with what we've learned and the confidence we have in it, we would use it to further your purposes as we await the return of our Lord. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.